You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Romans 8 it is. Romans 8. Um, I've said this repeatedly as we have been working through this chapter, um, because I want it kind of to stick somewhere in you so that you'll remember this, that many people call it the greatest chapter of the greatest book of the Bible. And I think there's so much truth to that. Uh, last week, I used the imagery, and this is what it's felt like to me preaching through Romans 8. I hope it's what it's felt like to you if you have just studied through Romans 8, you know, along the way with us. Um, it's felt to me like God in Romans 8 has opened up a vault and he has said, why don't you come on in and see what's in this vault? And as I've gotten in there, I've just seen packed into this vault, one promise from God after another. And it's almost as if God in Romans 8 is saying, hey, why don't you take a look around and see all of these beautiful promises that are in here? And not only look at them, why don't you pick a few of these things up? Why don't you grab them? Why don't you feel how sturdy they are? Why don't you feel how dependable they are? Why don't you see how, how capable these promises are to support your life? I feel like that's what's happened to me over the last um, several months of, of preaching through this. And then, uh, you know, Romans 8 is divided into two kind of parts. The, the first 30 verses form one part. The last nine verses form the second part. And in the last nine verses, I feel like what Paul does is say, hey, do you know these promises? You're in the vault. You've got the promises in your hand. You're, you're looking at them. Do you know those promises? I, I don't want you just to feel those promises and to, and to know that they're sturdy and dependable. I want you to actually bring them to bear on your life. I, I, want, I want to see you apply them to your life. I want you to see them. I, I want you to enjoy them and live in them. Allow these promises to nourish you as a human being. But I want you to do that. I want you to experience these things. And this is really what is happening in the last nine verses of Romans 8. Paul is showing us what it looks like to not just hold a promise, but to have a promise like to stand on a promise, to enjoy a promise, to be refreshed by the promises of God. This is what he's showing us. In the last nine verses of Romans 8, um, Paul uses six questions to help do that, to help show us what our response should be to the content of the first 30 verses of Romans chapter 8. So he uses six questions. And last week, we covered the first two questions. You find one in verse 31 or actually the, the first two in verse 31. Paul starts by saying, in light of the content, that the vault that we have just been in, the promises we have just unpacked in the first 30 verses, Paul says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Man, what, how are we gonna articulate and what are we gonna do with these things? And really that, that verse and that question is, a, is an invitation from Paul to think the promises through to take the content of the first 30 verses and to bring them to bear on, on your life and on his life. It's an invitation from Paul to preach the promises of verses one through 30 to your own heart, to, to keep them refreshed in your mind so that your forgetful mind will stay mindful of them. That, that, that's the first question. And, and then he shows us how to do that. So how, how Paul, are we to... How are we to preach the gospel to ourselves? Paul, what, what actually are we to say about these things? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 31. He says, here's an example of how you can preach the promises to yourself. You can do it like this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Like if God is for us, it doesn't matter who is against us. If God is for us, then no person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's plan for you. He's saying, preach that to yourself. Keep those in front of your mind so that your forgetful mind will stay mindful of those things. And then you get to verse 32. It's the third question, the third out of six. It's the third question. 
And contained in this question is one of the greatest promises that you will find anywhere in the scriptures. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How would God not graciously give us all things? So I'm gonna take verse 32 and we're gonna spend the rest of our time on that verse. And I wanna make three kind of big picture observations about verse 32 and what it says about our redemption, the redemption that we find in Jesus. What verse 32 says about our redemption. Here's the first thing that we can learn in verse 32. We get to see the cost of our redemption, the cost of our redemption. Look at the first phrase again. He who did not spare his own son, that is showing us something about the cost of redemption. He who did not spare his own son. Now verse 32 starts with the word he. And so one of the questions we need to ask right off the get-go is who is the he? Like who does that he refer to? And if you kind of trace the thought of that he, it goes back into verse 31. And that he is referring to the God who is for us. That's who the he is. It's the God who is for us. And so we could, we could restate verse 32, the first part of verse 32, like this. It is God the Father did not spare his own son, Jesus. God the Father did not spare his own son, Jesus. Now, a phrase like that should get us thinking about where do we... Where do we find that phrase throughout the Bible? Where, where does that sort of a phrase show up in the Bible? That phrase should attach itself into other parts of the Bible, stories of the Bible. And, and one of the main places that when you hear the phrase, he did not spare his own son, one of the main places that phrase should take us is all the way back into the, uh, the story of Abraham in, in uh, the book of Genesis, the opening book of the Bible. And, you know, the story of Abraham, in a lot of ways, there, there's a moment in his story that is foreshadowing what, what we're seeing played out in Romans 8.32. So let me just do a quick rehash of the story of Abraham. If you remember his story, God came to him, called him out of where he was, took him to a new place and said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Now, here was the problem with that promise. Abraham had no kids. So he's looking at God saying, God, I hear what you're saying, but Sarah and I are old. We are well advanced in years. We're past the baby making years, God. And you're telling us we're gonna have like all these descendants and we can't have kids. So there was a big problem with the promise that they couldn't have kids. And after years and years and years of waiting, Sarah conceived and she has a baby and his name is Isaac. God fulfilled his promise. And Abraham loved Isaac. Abraham was, was uh, you know, Isaac was Abraham's beloved son, his firstborn son, his only son. Those are the sort of words that you hear around how Abraham describes his son, Isaac. He loves Isaac. And then you get to Genesis chapter 22 and God comes to Abraham and God says this to Abraham. Take your son, Abraham, take your son. Listen to the, to the, to the kind of the wording around this. Take your son, your only son. Abraham, take your son, your, your only son, your beloved son. Abraham, the son that you love, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, Abraham, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him, your beloved son, Isaac. 
My, my promise to you, I want you to go and I want you to offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Can you imagine that moment? Abraham rises early the next morning and he and Isaac start the trek toward the mountain. They find the mountain and they start the gut-wrenching trek up the hill, you know, to the top of the mountain. And it's interesting. There's one little sidebar in the story where Isaac is like, dad, I'm really confused. I've seen us do these sacrifices before and I see the wood, dad. I see the fire. I see all the parts of the sacrifice. I just don't see the land. I don't, I don't see what we're going to sacrifice. This doesn't make sense to me. And what I could just only perceive is just a heart-wrenching moment. Abraham looks at his beloved son and says, God will provide, God will provide. They get to the top of the mountain and Abraham lays down the wood and he grabs his son and binds his son to the wood. Now, you know, this is like one of those moments where I wish the Bible didn't just state the cold, hard facts, you know? Like I would, cause that has sight, sound, smells, all that in it. I'm just saying, if I'm Isaac, my dad's gonna have to catch me. He's gonna have to run me down and that. I'm not going down without a fight in that moment. But, but he, he, he ties him down, he binds him on the wood. And then Abraham lifts his knife up over the heart of his son. He is about to bring his knife down into the heart of his beloved son, Isaac. I just cannot even fathom the moment. And at that moment, right before the knife comes down into his beloved son, Isaac, the angel of the Lord says, no, Abraham, don't do it. You have shown that you love God because you would not withhold your own son, but don't do it. There's your sacrifice. You see the ram in the thicket? There's your sacrifice. Offer the ram. Now that story is in the background of what we're reading here. Now, let me clarify something about this story about Abraham, because it's just a weird enough story that I think it deserves just one or two statements to clarify. God does not make a habit out of telling dads to sacrifice their kids. Now, when your kid's like 13 years old and you're a parent, you kind of want God to do that periodically, right? But God does not make a habit out of telling dad to sacrifice his kids. That's, this is a one-time event in the Bible. And it's a one-time event meant to foreshadow an event that would come later. So there, there is purpose in this moment. God is not just doing something to do it. He is doing something because he is giving a foretaste and a foreshadowing of what would one day happen. So the question becomes, what is going on here? What is happening in this moment? This moment with Abraham lifting the knife over his son is foreshadowing the cross of Christ. Now think about how the cross goes down. The night before Jesus is praying in the garden of Gethsemane, he sees the wood, he sees the fire, he knows what is coming. And, and he is not under any sort of like confusing sort of outlook on life. He, unlike Isaac, knows he is the sacrificial lamb. So he is praying in the garden the night before, blood is pouring out of his forehead. He is sweating drops of blood. He is so deep in anxiety. And he's praying to God the Father and he is saying to God the Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, may it be. And God the Father looks at his son and says, there is no way for this cup to pass. And God the Father takes the hand of God the Son and he leads God the Son up, ironically, the exact same hill. And up on that exact same mountaintop, he ties his beloved son, Jesus, down to the wood. And there God the Father lifts up his knife over the heart of his son. And this time there is no angel to say, no, don't do it. 
And God the Father's knife literally sinks into the soul of his son. Now the story of Abraham and Isaac is meant to draw us into the heart of God as God the Father is not sparing his own beloved son on the cross. That that is what the story of Abraham and Isaac is meant to do. It's meant to take us all the way back to Isaiah. When Isaiah in Isaiah 53 says, it was the Lord's will to crush him, to inflict his son with grief. This is what it cost him. He he did not spare his own beloved son. His hand was not stayed. He did not withhold his own beloved son. See, part of what Paul is clarifying for us is that when all the accounts are kind of, you know, comes to bear, it was not Pilate who killed Jesus. It was not the Pharisees, uh, Pharisees who killed Jesus. It was not the Jews who killed Jesus. God the Father is the one who did not spare Jesus. God the Father is the one who tied his son to the tree and allowed the crushing weight of sin to fall on his beloved son. It was God who did not spare his own son. Now remember what Paul is doing here. He is preaching the gospel to himself. He is helping his mind not be forgetful. He's taking the good news of Jesus and he's bringing it to bear in his mind. And he's preaching to himself all the promises of, of Romans 8, 1 through 30. All of those promises he's preaching to himself, they came at great cost to God. Those promises that we see in Romans 8, 1 through 30 were purchased by the very life of God's own son. He did not spare his own son so that these promises could be true. It's the cost of our redemption. It's the first thing we see in Romans 8, 32, the cost of our redemption, that God the Father did not spare his own son, Jesus. Here's the second thing we see in Romans 8, 32, the generosity of God in our redemption the generosity of God in our redemption. Look how the, the, the first two phrases of Romans 8.32 go. First phrase, he who did not spare his own son. Second phrase, but in contrast to sparing his son, but he gave him up for us all. I love that. He gave him up. He, he gave. This is what the amazing love of God looks like. God looks at rebellious sinners like me. He looks at rebellious sinners like you, people who have fired the first shot at God. And rather than firing a shot back at us, God opens up his big and mighty heart and he gives to us. He gives. You have never met a being that is more generous than God. I mean, just think about that. You have never met a being more generous than God. You have never met a person more willing to give what was so precious to them than God is. You've never met that person that's more generous than God is. Part part of what, when you just get through all the layers and you get down to the deepest sense of who God is, you're seeing it right here. God is a God who gives. He is a generous God. You've never met a person more generous than God. Aren't we grateful that God does not give us what we deserve, but gives us so much better than we deserve? That is the kind heart of God. Now, Paul answers this question. Okay, so we're seeing that God gave, but what did Paul give? Or what did, what did Jesus or God the Father give? What, what did he give to us? Answer, God the Father gave him. You see it here, he who did not spare his own son, but gave, there's the heart of God, but what did he give? Gave him up. 
who did God the Father give? He gave his own beloved son. The most precious commodity in all the universe, God the Father gave him. What, what was most precious and most prized to God the Father, his one and only beloved son, that is the exact thing that God gave. Now Paul answers the question, not just of, of what did he give up? He gave up his son, but why did he give it up? Like, why did he do that? Why did he give up his son? He answers the question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. Why? Why, Paul? For us all. God the Father literally forsook his beloved son, Jesus, on the cross. Why? Paul answers it. For, answer, for us. For, he did that for me, for you. That's why God the Father gave up his beloved son. God the Father let go of his beloved son to take hold of us. God the Father pushed away God the Son. Why? So that he could bring us near. God the Father made God the Son endure hell on the cross. Why? So that we could then enjoy heaven forever with God. God the Father forsook God the Son. Why? So that he could then extend us forgiveness. This is what God the Father is doing on the Son. He is giving up God the Son so that he can forgive us, so that he can bring us near, so that he can save us, so that he can redeem us, so that he can adopt us, so that he can spend forever with us. This is what the big, generous heart of God is doing. He is giving up his own beloved son and he's doing that for you, to, to bring you in. This is what the heart of God is doing. Now remember, Paul is, Paul is preaching this to himself. He is showing us what we're to do with the content of the first 30 verses of Romans 8. And he's preaching to himself, this is just how generous God is. That God would give up his son to make us his sons and daughters. That God would forsake his son so that he could bring us into his family. He's staying mindful of the good news of Jesus, of just how generous God's heart is in our redemption. Now we get to the last half of verse 32. And we see this, the third thing, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. So if you look at verse 32, there's a comma right in the middle of it. The comma separates the two halves. In the first half, we see the cost of redemption, and we see the generous heart of God in our redemption. That's the first half of the verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. The cost and the generous heart of God. Now, when you get to the, to the part of the verses after that comma, you're into the second half of the passage. And in that passage, Paul, it's as if Paul is asking the question. So what does the cost of our redemption and the generosity of God in our redemption, what is that meant to do to us? How do we apply that? How do we bring that to bear on our life? How is that meant to shape and impact the way we see God in our life? What difference does the first half of the verse make? And Paul tells us what difference the first half of the verse makes. Here is the application of redemption. Here is what Paul wants us to get from this passage. He wants us to get the last half of it. So if God would not spare his own son, but graciously give him up for us all, what difference does that make, Paul? Here's the difference. How will he, how will God not also with him, that's Jesus, how will God not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? That's the difference it should make. 
that, that as we're looking at redemption and we see the cost of our redemption, that God did not spare his own son. We see the generous heart of God in our redemption, but he gave him up for us all. It is meant to lead us to start seeing God in our life like this. If that is true, then everything else that we will ever need from God, God is sure to give it to us. So do you see the, the logic that Paul is employing here? He's using like an if-then logic, like an argument from the greater to the lesser. Here's how the argument works. The argument works like this. If the first half of the verse is true, then the second half of the verse would naturally follow. Now, why is that? It goes like this. If God would do the great thing in not sparing his own son, but giving his own son up for us all, if God would do the great thing, then of course God would do like the small thing of giving us everything else that we need in our life. Do you see how the logic works? Paul's saying, if God the Father would give you the priceless thing, aka Jesus, the priceless thing, then don't you think God would give you like pennies in your life, aka all things that you need right now in your life, all things that you need to get you safely home to God. If God would give us the great things, surely he would give us the small things like the little things that we need in our life, right? Do you see how the logic works? Paul is saying, if God would give you his best gift, then surely he's not gonna be stingy with his lesser gifts. That's the way Paul's logic works here. If God would not spare his own son, but give him up for us all, then how in the world would God not look at your life and give you everything you need now in your life, give you all things that you need now in your life? Now, this whole passage, verse 32, it hinges on the last phrase in verse 32. It hinges on that phrase, all things, and what in the world does that mean? When Paul says that God will give us all things, like with Jesus, he's gonna graciously give us all things. What in the world does all things mean? Let me start by telling you some of what it doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that, it, that God is going to give you everything that you ask. That's not what it means. Uh, does it mean that God's gonna give us a safe, comfortable life? The answer is no to that. Does it mean that if you ask for a million dollars that a million dollars is just gonna show up in your mailbox tomorrow? The answer is no to that. Does that mean that, that you'll never have cancer? The answer is no to that. Does that mean you'll always be healthy? The answer is no to that, to that. Does that mean you'll never have a problem in your life? The answer is no to that. Those are not the things that this means. So what does it mean? I'm gonna let J.I. Packer, he's a good theologian and author. I'm gonna let him answer that question. It's gonna be um, up on the screen for you. He says it like this. The meaning of he will give us all things can be put like this. One day we shall see that nothing, literally nothing, which could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. And that nothing, literally nothing, I mean, just like, there's no way it's possible. Literally nothing that could have reduced that happiness has been left with us. Now that is a mind boggling promise, isn't it? I mean, that, that is what Romans 8.32 is doing is it is opening up God's mighty and big heart toward us. It's, over, it's uncovering God's big heart toward us and it's showing us that this is God's disposition and posture towards his sons and daughters. He has this disposition. I have a whatever it takes attitude towards you. Whatever it's going to take to make you like Jesus and to enjoy Jesus forever in heaven with him. Whatever it takes to bring you safely to that, I'm gonna do it. 
Whatever it takes, I will give you all things. I will give you everything that you need to, to make you like Jesus and to bring you safely home where you'll get to enjoy Jesus forever in eternity. I'm gonna give you every single thing you could ever need to make that happen. There will not be one thing missing when all accounts are settled. I will give you all things, he is saying. Now, before we go any further, did you know that was God's heart towards you if you're in Christ? That God is looking at you this morning and he is saying, do you know I have a whatever it takes attitude towards you? that I will give you every single thing for the rest of your life that you need to be like Jesus and to be with Jesus forever in heaven. I'm, not one thing is ever going to be missing. I'm gonna give it all to you. Do you know God the Father feels that way about you? Do you know that's his disposition towards you this morning? He has that whatever it takes attitude towards you. Now, here's what I wanna do to finish. I wanna just take a few minutes to apply this. And uh, the application is gonna come in two, two ways. Here's the first way. Application number one. And really the last half of this verse is showing us what, what is the, the doctrine of our redemption, the cost of it, the, the generous heart of God. What, what should it, how should it be changing us? What should it do to us? So let me just end with these two ways of applying it. Um, first thing I want to apply is the assumption that lies right under the verse. Now, this is an easy thing to miss when you read Romans 8.32. There is an assumption that is, in Paul's mind, uh, a certain assumption that makes Romans 8.32, the logic of it, work in our life. This assumption that's underneath it makes the logic of it, like, it, 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 in some ways, it makes the logic of Romans 8.32, you know, be inserted into our soul in such a way where, like, this unshakable joy and confidence is had. But if this assumption, if you don't share Paul's assumption, then Romans 8.32 is not going to be a powerful promise for you. So here is Paul's assumption that lies right underneath what you are reading on the page. Okay, here's the assumption. That Jesus is the most prized possession in all the universe. That's the assumption. Right underneath Romans 8.32 is Paul assuming this. Jesus really is the most valuable and prized commodity that any human being could ever have. He is the most prized possession in all the universe. And it's when we feel that, when we really believe that, that the promise of Romans 8.32 just electrifies us and lights us up. But welcome to the problem we all have, right? So often in our life, that's not the way we feel about Jesus. So often in our life, we devalue what is supremely valuable, namely Jesus. So this is how we often, this is how I oftentimes operate. I'm looking at my life and I'm saying something like this. God, I, man, I, I am so thankful for Jesus. Man, I wanna tell you that I'm so grateful for Jesus, thankful for Jesus. Um, but can we get down to like the brass tacks of life? I'm grateful for Jesus, but can we be serious? What I really need right now is for this problem to go away. What I really need right now is for this thing to get fixed. What I really need right now is some more money. What I really need right now is a different house. What I really need right now is a different wife. What I really need right now is just fill in the blank of things over here. Now, what is happening in that moment? Jesus in my heart has been devalued and God's lesser gifts have been supremely valued. And if we come to Romans 8.32 with, with the wrong assumption that Jesus is good and all, 
but the really good things in life are over here. If we come to this passage with that assumption, we will always be disappointed. This promise will always fall flat for us. Now think about what what a devaluing of Jesus uh, does in our life, what it produces. When we devalue Jesus in our life, we instantly get frustrated at God. We feel unloved by God because God isn't giving us what it is that we really want, what we're supremely valuing. And then when we get kind of frustrated and and angry at God, we kind of wallow in our self-pity. Like we feel bad for ourselves. We feel sorry for ourselves because God's not giving us these lesser gifts. He's he's not giving us these things over here that we really want that to us are supremely valuable. And then we start voicing our frustration at God. God, how could you give me Jesus and God not give me the best thing of this new house? How, How could you just give me Jesus and not this problem fixed? How could you just give me Jesus? And God is saying, in Jesus, I'm giving you the best thing. I'm giving you everything in Jesus. But see, when, when we think other things are, are more valuable than Jesus, we sink into self-pity. We feel unloved by God. But on the opposite end of that, when Jesus becomes the most valuable thing in our life, we are welcomed right back into the category of feeling loved by God. Now, if we went back into that this morning, if we wanna actually leave here feeling loved by God, do you know where that starts? It starts with you and I repenting of making lesser things the supremely valuable things in our life. For us taking that to God and confessing that to God and for us pleading with God to give us a fresh dose of grace this morning that would reawaken our heart to Jesus is really the most valuable person on the planet. He is the most valuable commodity on the planet. He is the most prized possession in the universe that God would reawaken our heart to that. And when God does, then we're out of our self-pity. We actually feel loved again by God because God has given us the best thing, the the supremely valuable thing in the life, death, and resurrection of a son. So that's one way that we need to apply it. We need to apply the assumption. Here's the last way I want you to apply it. We need to apply the pastoral logic of this passage, the pastoral logic. Now think with me again. I said this last week, I'm gonna say it again. Paul is not writing into thin air. He's not writing to an abstract group of people. He's writing to people that he knows. It's a church in Rome, got people that he knows in Rome that he's writing to. And he knows their particular hangups, their particular difficulties. He knows what is sick in their soul. And he's writing Romans 8.32 to address their soul sickness. Now the question becomes, what is it about them that he is correcting or addressing? What is off in them that that, that he's using Romans 8.32 to remedy in their life? What is he trying to unlock in them? Now here would be my answer to the question. Who is he trying to address? What is he trying to address in this moment? I would answer it this way. Paul's writing to what we might call halfway Christians. Halfway Christians. They're Christians They love Jesus. Jesus is in them and Jesus is at work in them. Jesus is at work right now in their heart. He's hacking through the jungle of sin and and rebellion in their heart and he's taking new ground in their heart. He's doing new things. He's leading them to new and greener pastures. So Jesus is doing that in, in the people he's addressing here, these halfway Christians. But and if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, you know the moment when Jesus is doing that and you get to a fork in the road. And here's what the fork in the road looks like. This road, road number one, we'll call it, 
Jesus is down that road. He's hacking into new and untamed you know, territories in our heart. He's leading us into new places. He, he's wanting new obedience in our life. And he's looking at us and he's saying, come on, let's do this. But we're looking down that road from the fork and we're saying, that looks so scary to go down that road. I don't know how that road's gonna end. I don't know what that road's gonna cost me. All I know is it's gonna cost me a lot. And Jesus, I'm just not sure if I'm ready to do that. And then we look over to road number two. And on road number two, it looks comfortable over there. This is, this is the road we've traveled often. There's no risk down road number two. There's no cost down road number two. It, it's a safe, comfortable road down road number two. The problem is there's just no Jesus down that road. And he is writing to a group of people that have formed a pattern in their life of forsaking the journey with Jesus, the hard journey with Jesus down road number one, and who have formed a pattern of living on road number two. Formed a pattern of, of rejecting the work of Jesus in their life as they opt for a safe, comfortable, risk-free sort of a way of living with Jesus. It's a halfway Christian. It's that moment where God gets you to the fork in the road of, I really want you to forgive. I know it's gonna feel like you're dying. I really want you to be meek, which means you're not gonna demand all of your rights. And I really know deep down inside, you have this big thing in you that just wants everyone to give you what, you're, what, you, what you, know, you deserve. I, I know you want that, but he said, I, I want you to be meek. I don't want you to demand your rights. I, I want you to sever that root of bitterness in you. I know it's gonna be hard to do that. I want you to grow in this new way. I want you to grow into sacrificial giving. I want you to learn new measures of what it means to die to yourself so you can love your spouse. I, I wanna take you to these sort of new places. And a halfway Christian is looking at Jesus down road number one and just saying, it's too risky to go down road number one with you, Jesus. It's just gonna cost me too much to do that. I cannot go down that road with you. So I'm gonna do this pattern of going down road number one. It's safe, it's comfortable. I've traveled this road before. It's just void of Jesus. Now, if you have followed Jesus for any length of time, you know what that feels like. Every one of us in the room this morning are experiencing that to various levels. God is looking at you and saying, I wanna take you to new places, new and greener pastures. And inside we're looking at that and we're saying, God, but you might kill me if I do that. I might die if I do that. I just don't know if I can do that with you. So I'm gonna opt for this, for this safer road. Now, if you know that feeling, I want you to take this to the next step. This is a really important moment this morning. I want you to ask yourself the question of, why is it that we get hung up here? Why is it that we're looking at these two roads? This is life with Jesus, new and greener pasture. This is Jesus taking us to new places in our life. Why is it that we so often settle for road number two that's safe and comfortable, but void of Jesus? Why is that? I'm gonna to try to answer that this morning. Here's the reason that I think we get hung up in our obedience. Why it is that many of us right now are resisting the work of Jesus in our life, just not letting Jesus take us to the places he wants us to go. Here's the reason that I think that is. Down below that pattern of disobedience is the belief that the losses in obedience will outweigh the gains of our godliness, the gains of our life with Jesus. I'm gonna say that again. Think about this. Why are you hung up in that area? God wants this new place for you. He's wanting to take you to a different and new place. Why is it that you're so hesitant to do that? Why is it that for most of us, we've made a habit in our life of not going with Jesus there, but opting for road number two? Answer, down below that pattern of disobedience is the belief 
that the losses in obedience will outweigh the gains of godliness, will outweigh the gains of going for it with Jesus. This is why so many of us are so terrified to push all the way in with Jesus. So what we do is we just keep so much of our heart hidden behind us, keeping it safe from Jesus. This is how most of us operate. It's because we really think if we go down that road, we're gonna lose more than Jesus would ever give us. Now listen to J.I. Packer address that fear that is alive in every one of us in the room. It's alive in me and it's alive in you. Here's what he says about that fear. He said, it's this half-conscious fear. Okay, this fear that lives in you and me. He said, it's that fear, rather than a deliberate refusal to face the cost of following Christ, which makes us hold back. It's that fear that if we go down that road, we're gonna be shortchanged. We're gonna give so much more than Jesus will ever give us in return for going down that road. It's that fear, he says, that makes us hold back, that makes us not throw our life all in with Jesus. He goes on. We feel that the risk of all out discipleship are just too great for us to take. We just don't know if Jesus is gonna give us back in in, in return. We know it's gonna cost us all sorts of things, but we just feel like those, that cost is gonna outweigh the gains of that life with God. So he goes on to say this, let us call a spade a spade. The name of the game we're playing is unbelief. And Paul's, he will give us all things. Paul's Romans 8.32, Paul's, he will give us all things stands as an everlasting rebuke. Paul is telling us, listen to what Paul is telling us. Listen to how he just condenses the promise of Romans 8.32. Paul is telling us that there is no ultimate loss. In the end, when the dust settles and the smoke clears, there will be no Christian who stands before God and feels like they have lost. In the end, Paul is telling us there is no ultimate loss. The promise leaves no ground for any sense of or fear of personal impoverishment. Paul's saying there's just not gonna be a day where you're shortchanged by God. If you're hung up in your obedience and you're fearful this morning, if I push all the way in, it's, it, God's gonna kill me. It's just gonna cost too much for me to do that. Paul is saying, yes, it's going to cost you. It's gonna feel like you are dying as you walk down that road with Jesus. But Jesus is promising to give you so much more than you will ever give him. Let me end by this story from Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor um, was born on May 21st, 1832 in England. And at the age of 17, he was a rebellious teenage boy and uh, into all sorts of, of things he shouldn't have been into. He walked into his dad's study. He found a book called The Finished Work of Christ. He finds that book and, uh, and he reads the book. A 17 year old rebellious guy takes that book off the shelf and reads it. And at the very same time, 80 miles away, Unbeknownst to both of them, his mom is on her knees pleading for the salvation of of her kid. He reads the book and in that moment, in just a dramatic scene, God saves Hudson Taylor. Now looking back over that moment, he, uh, he says that from that time on, the conviction never left me. From 17 years when I, when I was originally saved, the conviction never left me that I was called to China. And Hudson Taylor spent the next 51 years of his life bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ, trying to get it into every man, woman, and child's village and place in China. Spent the next 51 years of his life. And it cost him so, so, so much to do that. 
I mean, it's hard to even like condense the losses, but let me just give you a few of them. Uh, during those days, he, he married Maria. They had eight children. And of their eight children, four of their children died. In 1867, uh, that was the, the first death, came the death of their precious firstborn, Gracie. Three years later in 1870, marked one of the most difficult years for them. His son, Samuel, who was a few years old at the time, he died in 1870 in January of that year. Then his wife, Maria, was pregnant that year. She gave birth to a little uh, baby named Noel, and that was in July. Two weeks later, Noel died, another child lost. Later on in the same month, later on in July, so that Noel had just died, just had Noel, two weeks later she dies. Later on in the same month, on July uh, 23rd, his wife, Maria, just got sick. And in the matter of like a day or two, she died. Can you just imagine what he is feeling in that moment, just the despair and the sinking feeling of grief that he's, that he's enduring. Uh, Maria was 33 when she died. Hudson Taylor was, was 38 when, when she died. You know, and when it comes to other losses, he, uh, he had, in the 51 years of ministering in China, he took like 10 trips back and forth from England to China. That was not the days where you get on a plane and you're there in like a day, right? That was not that day. That was the day where you get on a boat and you're in a boat for like six months and then you get to China or then you get back to England. All total, he spent over five years of his life on a ship trying to get the gospel to China. I mean, just losses everywhere. When he got to China, he started a China uh, inland mission, Um, And he led that throughout the rest of his life. That is 51 years of of being there. And that faced opposition and hostility and pressures like you wouldn't believe. In 1867, this was the same year that they lost their firstborn uh, son. In that same year, their home was burned and they barely got out alive. People wanted to kill them and they ran for their life and barely escaped with their life. They were constantly dealing with threats and opposition, constantly dealing with trying to fundraise so that their, the, the mission could be supported. This is how bad it was. You know it's bad when, when you get this letter from a friend. When the, when the letter starts like this, you know your life is really hard. If you're not dead yet, you know your life's tough when that's the way they start the letter. If you're not dead yet, I want to send you this money that I've saved up for the boys and girls of China to love Jesus. If you're not dead left, here's some money that you can use to get this thing going. In 1900, the Boxer Rebellion swept through China. This is when uh, the kind of the Chinese government intentionally started persecuting and killing foreign missionaries. In uh, Hudson Taylor's crew of missionaries, 58 of them lost their life in that season. 21 of their kids were killed in that season. I mean, just loss after loss after loss. One day at the end of his life, he is looking back over the 51 years of service in China. 51 years of heartbreaking work. And Hudson Taylor says this. This is the final comment when he's looking back over his life. He says these five words. I never made a sacrifice. I've never made a sacrifice. Those five words are the five words that every Christian will say one day when you stand with Jesus and the haze is cleared and you can see your life with clarity. And on that day, you're gonna do, you're gonna, you're gonna do a calculation. You're gonna weigh things out. On this side are gonna be all of your losses, all the things that you have given up for Jesus' sake, all the things that you have died to for Jesus' sake. And on this side are gonna be all of what God has given you, the all things of Romans 8.32. And you know what every one of our last calculation, what, what we're, every single one of us are gonna say, the same five words. In light of all that God has given me, in light of what I've given him, I have never made a sacrifice. 
That's what Paul is trying to convince us of in Romans 8, 32. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. You know, when I think about Romans 8, 32, first of all, I think of it as an invitation from God that if you have not had the decisive moment in your life where you have pushed your life all in with Jesus, this is what the Bible calls faith, where you have not put your faith in Jesus, and this is, a, this is an invitation. God has, God has not spared his own son, but he's given him up for us all. He's given him up for you. So that in a morning like this, as the Lord is speaking and drawing and wooing and talking to you, you would get to a moment of pushing your life in with Jesus and God would save you. He would rescue you. He would redeem you. So if that's you this morning, Here's what that looks like. It looks like you turning from your sin and then you throwing your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if that's you, if you'll grab that card under your seat, fill that card out, check that box, establishing a relationship with Jesus. And man, we would love to start the journey with you. For others in the room that you're in the family, maybe you could just Ask the Lord, what what would be the best way for me to apply this? Have I devalued Jesus? Would the the appropriate response this morning be to bring that before the Lord and to say, God, I'm sorry. That is sin. And God, will you give me a fresh wave of grace this morning to awaken my heart to just how valuable Jesus is? We want to feel loved by God again. That's the first step. Or maybe we could apply the pastoral logic. Maybe we're looking at parts of our life right now where we are just looking at God and saying, God, I'm, I'm not obe- I can't obey you there. I cannot go down that hard road of obedience that you're asking for me. I can't do it. It's too risky. I just don't know how it's gonna turn out. Hear the, re- the loving rebuke of Paul. God will give you all things. For everything that you let go of and you lose on the path of following Jesus, God will give you exponentially more in his son, Jesus. There is no room for any personal impoverishment in this thing. When all accounts are settled, the dust clears, we will all say, I have never made a sacrifice. So, oh God, would you unlock our hearts this morning? Would you unlock the obedience that's needed in many of our lives this morning, the hard obedience that you're calling us to? And God, by by the power of your spirit, God, would you help us believe that you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all, the most precious and prized thing in the universe. So how in the world will you not give us everything we need today to be like Jesus? and to be with Jesus forever in heaven. How how would you not give us those things? So God, would you help us believe that? Would you help us this morning? It's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.